0: Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. I'm real excited. My guest today is the great Ken Aletta, and I don't say great um, with any exaggeration. Uh, Ken is someone I'm lucky enough to uh, have become friends with over the past few years, but I've been reading him long before that. And he's the author of 11 books, many bestsellers. He's had his own column in The New Yorker since what, 1983?
1: No, uh, I started writing The New Yorker in 77, but my the Annals of Communications in 92.
0: Ninety-two. All right, I'm going to kill the person who told me it was eighty-three. But um, you started writing for the New Yorker in seventy-seven. Right. So that's how uh, I've been reading you along. I think I started reading the New Yorker when I was fifteen. So uh, a few years, a few years after that. And Ken has a new, a sensational new book coming out June fifth called Frenemies, about the disruption in um, the advertising and marketing uh, industries. And um, thanks for coming here. My pleasure. Ken. Uh, He also organizes the artists and writers. Uh, He captains one of the teams in the artists and writers game in the Hamptons.
1: Which you played in. Which I played in last summer. Second
0: base. And uh, I played a nifty second base, but I was yanked for uh, a better hitter. And um, that game is about to have its 70th anniversary, right?
1: Yeah, we play third third, uh, Saturday in August.
0: Who's like the most famous artist who, who you've ever played in the game with, do you think?
1: Um... Well, you know, they have these ringers. I mean, George Clooney, the former heavyweight champion for one, one match, they claim was an artist.
0: Um, they I, brought I him in? A, uh, yeah. Jerry, Jerry, Jerry. Jerry Clooney, yeah. Yeah.
1: And, and he, he never played softball before. And he, his idea of what you did was you ran down first base and you knocked over the first <laughs> that's baseman. That's first that. baseman was Andy Lack, who was the chairman of NBC News today. He broke his shoulder. So that was... Um,
0: <laughs> right, then you guys dialed back the ringers, I guess, at that
1: point. No, no, they but, had, but used to have. But it's really
0: notable people, right? Notable artists and yeah, writers uh, playing. We, game.
1: I, I, I kept the writers' team. We had people like Carl Bernstein to play. Mike Lupica plays. Um, we had, the year you came, John Franco was our pitcher, the former Mets pitcher. Yes. trying to get him back. He's a good athlete.
0: Oh, and um, it's a great thing for a, gra- a great cause, and it was an honor to get to. When you and Lupica asked me to play, I was really excited to plan it so I, I want to get to the the book and, and why that was your subject but I want to start um, one of the great things I like about talking to someone I've had a bunch of dinners with is at dinner it's some, maybe rude to ask some like somebody to go back into their life but we have microphones in front of us so I can ask you now <laughs> so can I, can you describe ha, how, how you grew up like were there writers around you were you around people in the arts what was your childhood like where, and where' did you grow up because you've had this incredibly notable career for a really long time. And when someone looks at you, Ken, you're so polished and you're so good at, you know, you're a true man of letters and you're somebody who has, you know, your your wife, Banky Erman, is the most, arguably the most successful literary agent of these times. And it it almost can seem like it's all come easily to you. So that's why I find it useful to go backwards a bit. So you talk about that, like how you how you grew up.
1: Uh, I grew up on Coney Island, uh, working class family. Um, mother Jewish, father Italian. We grew up in a, first first Italian section of Coney Island, uh, but we lived with my mother's parents uh, on West 17th Street, which is down the block from Steeplechase and the parachute jump. My, my Italian grandmother lived across the street. My mother had two other sisters, Jewish sisters who married Italian men. My, brother, my father had a brother who married a Jewish woman. The, and yet, if you went to a Lady of Solis Church, you would sometimes hear the priests say the Jews kill Christ. And my father stopped going to church, because he said, Nettie, my Nettie didn't kill any. Um, sure. And so it was the stereotypes, you couldn't stereotype, as Donald Trump talks about Mexican Americans uh, and immigrants, because you knew Jewish people, you knew Italian people, and when. When I was 13, uh, my brother and sister and I, uh, and my parents, we moved to what we thought was an upscale move. It was called The Projects on West 29th Street and Surf Avenue. It was the first project in Coney Island, and it was Mitchell-Lama, so it was subsidized housing for working-class people. So, but Projects didn't have the negative connotation that it, it came to have.
0: Because they were, they were these projects to improve,
1: supposedly. They were apartment houses over the water. You heard the lapping waves that we were on the fifth floor. We would hear the waves if you open your window at night. It was great. And they were n- not tall buildings. They were 14 stories and there were five or six buildings. And But then projects populated all of much of Coney Island and all the mom and pa stores went and what Jane Jacobs once called eyes on the street were gone. People were not sitting outside on the stoops. There were no more stoops. And so Coney Allen changed. I was I I was torn as a teenager uh, in that my tough guy friends a- appealed yeah. to you know I had more uh, drive over me than, than my bookish my bookish. You brother. mean the, the
0: athlete because you were a good athlete. I was an athlete
1: home. and and um, but I like to hang out. And and not go to school all the time, and I wasn't a good student. I had a sixty-four average in high school.
0: This is really important. I love this.
1: And and what happened was that that when I was a junior, uh, the I was thrown out of high school for copying a book of passes to leave the building. You're not allowed to leave the building unless you had a pass. And I wanted to leave the lead building, hang out with the girls at the sweet shop across the street. The dean of men whose name was dean or and he had a hit like mustache straight mustache cut at the corners he just ordered me out of school you're fired you're out of school you're thrown out no no hearing no hearing. this was a catholic school or no no a, it was abraham lincoln high school public but there was high a dean school. of men at a public school i don't yeah, i didn't dean of men it was three thousand students right and so i was thrown out of uh, maybe it was a dean of, of of high school not of men i'm sorry okay and um so my parents along, My brother, who was old, five years older than I, went to, was a first college graduate from our family. And uh, my parents arranged to see the principal with me in tow. I came to the meeting with my sleeves rolled up. <laughs> you did, shoulders. like with yeah. a pack of cigarettes I didn't, and I didn't bring cigarettes it looked like in there, that. but it looked like that. And Abraham Lass was the principal. is is an amazing man. He wrote a column for the Herald Tribune on education. And then later for the Times, he was an amazing character. So he says, tell me Kenneth." He called me Kenneth. No, no one called me Kennet. And I was really, I bridled. I mean, Kenneth. I mean, I was really. <laughs> so I'm getting steamed. And he says, tell me, Kenneth." He kept on repeating. He knew I, I yeah, getting he knew it was uh, getting steamed. Yeah. And he says, tell me, Kenneth. what do you like about Abraham Lincoln High School? I said, I like football and baseball. He said, tell me, Kenneth." He said, how do you suppose you're going to. Play football and baseball for Abraham Lincoln High School if you don't attend Abraham Lincoln High School. Duh. Pretty good. <laughs> you know, it got my attention. You know, and amazing how you don't make a connection. So he had my attention. He says, I'm telling you what we're gonna do. I'm gonna let you back in school, but no more free periods. Instead of your free periods, you come to my office and you're gonna read books that I assign. And so I became I, Dickens, I started reading books in. A, Are you in like
0: in 10th grade at this point, do you? Think? I'm in,
1: I'm in my junior year, so wow. Uh, and, and so I'm 16. And what happened then is that um, the next year, I, I was a pitcher and I played center field and, and pitch, but at one point I had a pretty good fastball. So you know and the baseball, I, I couldn't get any colleges uh, with my average. with your grades. I had terrible grades. And I was a risk, you know. Is he a juvenile delinquent or semi juvenile, whatever? And the baseball coach from the State University of Oswego came down, and he to, to recruit me. And he gives me the the book of courses you could take a major in. This is a teachers college at the time, and I didn't even know where Oswego was. And um, and it says industrial arts. I said, Oh, I like arts. Oh. And a little that I know was yeah, shops. sure, yeah. And so, anyway, I went to State University of Oswego.
0: To play ball there?
1: To play ball, and and eventually to become a reasonable student. And and then um, ed- edit the underground newspaper, literary magazine, and stuff, right. and then I went to graduate school.
0: But before we jump forward, which I, I want to do to grad school and all that stuff, and how you figured out you were a writer,
1: when,
0: when you were doing badly in school and hanging out with your buddies, I assume you knew you were a good storyteller because that's just a part of who you are in terms of like verbal storytelling or joking around or did you not like did you know you were a bright person did you did the teachers know you were a bright guy did you not think about it
1: i didn't think about it um i had every once in a while i would have i had a, a teacher by the name of miss a history teacher i remember she thought i was bright uh but i never gave any thought to it because i didn't i didn't lionize being bright <coughs> i lionize being an athlete or being tough
0: that's what mattered to you because of the culture you were in. Fascinating.
1: Right. And, and, and it was a division with my family because my brother, my older brother, who was a really good student, graduated college at 19. Um, I didn't look up to him um, because he wasn't a tough guy.
0: So somehow the, the icon of the tough, good athlete who didn't give a shit was where you gravitated, <laughs> right. what you were interested in. And what happened when you started reading the books? Did did you, did you connect? So you said he gave me these books, which I I love the image of this guy. Rec- obviously, he recognized something in you, or he wouldn't have done it, right? So, did you start to realize was it always a pain in the ass, or even if you said to your friends it was, I I have similar stuff to this. Which I talked, but did 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 you go? Oh, I like this. Did it connect for you?
1: Yeah, it did. Um, it it I, I always had a, a conscience in that. Um, I wouldn't jump on people in a fight or uh, things had to be fair. My mother was very strong about not cursing. I didn't curse, even though I was, rolled up my sleeves and I was a reasonably tough guy.
0: Even with your buddies, you wouldn't curse?
1: Well, I would, but, I, uh, but, but I, I, not as much as they did. Yeah, right. I, I always would, had a gutter uh, mouth. Yeah, I didn't. I, it I wasn't, always had a gutter mouth. Anyway, this A-blast, the principal, became a lifetime mentor for me, and, and, and I spoke at his funeral, actually. That's beautiful. Um, but he was a great man. and But I, I got into reading, into books, and by my sophomore year of, of college, I got into writing. So I started writing for the student newspaper and then uh, and writing essays and then actually started an underground newspaper.
0: But this strong sense of fairness is something that's cut through all of your writing. I think it's something that you still... Are very animate. I think that that subject still animates you a great it does. deal. It does, yeah. It, uh, did, it
1: did even as a kid, though. I, I was. Uh, I didn't. Um, I didn't steal things. Uh, I didn't lie. Um, I mean, I had a, a moral compass uh, as a kid, even though uh, it was not the same moral compass as say my parents wanted me to have. But school and and um, and, and friend, who my friends were. and work.
0: so for you being in high school, um, you didn't have some ambition that you were going to be, other than as a ball player, that you were gonna be famous or successful um, or any sense of the kind of career you would have. You were just kind of like getting by.
1: Yeah, getting by. And I never even thought about uh, what I would do growing up because I didn't think I would grow up. And you, didn't I mean,
0: an, and you didn't have an interest in politics then in any real way where no, you all. were understanding the, the, the power of, because you know another thing you're interested in as a professional is the, the actions of people in power, all sorts of influence, right? And how that gets meted out on the less fortunate. But you weren't thinking about any of that shit then.
1: No, I wasn't. I and cursed I,
0: again, sorry. And
1: I, and no, no, it's okay. Um, <laughs> I've heard the word. And But I, I, I also you know, didn't, uh, I, what I do now and, and have done for a long time as a reporter is you observe a lot and you watch. I wasn't watching. I was just participating and doing and and doing fairly narrow things.
0: And you didn't, so so I was always watching, it turns out. Like I was doing, I know I was always watching. Later I realized why, but I, I'm not sure I, I see you now in any of the times we spend spent together and you don't miss a thing, you're looking at everything. So you think you developed that yeah. consciously as opposed to it being something innate in you? Like I, even when you were a kid, you, you didn't notice, oh, Billy's doing this or this guy's acting in that way it, it wasn't a part of you.
1: well, it was, but it was it, but it was. I didn't have the self-awareness that I had. and and the self-awareness sometimes involves being quiet and watching and letting others talk and 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 not burdening people with your opinions and and observations. And so I but I mean, I would watch some as a kid. Um, and I, you know, Danny, being a fool here. Or something, I mean, obviously, it's just obvious stuff. But I was not, not, not the way I did as an adult.
0: And so, how in college? What ha- like around what year did you go to college?
1: I went to college in. Uh, I graduated high school in '59. Right.
0: So right. That's great. The dawn of the '60s.
1: Yeah. And I went to. I went to college and graduated in '63. All early civil rights. I became an activist in civil rights uh, at Oswego. Uh, which was a very conservative upstate city north of Syracuse. And I remember when we did a, a march, um, which would have been like in 61, downtown, and people were literally throwing tomatoes at us and calling us communists. And and uh, so I was becoming much more politically aware. Of that. How did that, do
0: you remember how that started to happen? Like, because you, you mentioned underground newspaper. I think a lot of people listening probably don't, Definitely don't know what Sam's dad is, but don't understand what an underground paper is because of the way the world is organized now. They were, you know, like pirate radio stations and, um, you know, the need to get your message out in a different way, how a school could control the school's newspaper and wouldn't let you publish what you'd want. So, can you talk a little bit about where you were and how that all came to be?
1: It was a very conservative. Community Oswego. Uh, it was a, a very definitional time in my life going to that college. It was great. I learned and helped shape me, and, and I have great affinity for that school and still go up there and, uh, from talk. time to time. Yeah. And uh, But I remember being angry a lot. And, for instance, the president of the college was a man by the name of Foster Brown, and I learned that he owned real estate. And was secretly selling it to the university to expand how'd you learn this i i am writing a weekly column for the oswegonian which was a student oh newspaper. the regular
0: newspaper yeah, you were then the, like kind of researching stuff
1: yeah and i found that out and i started writing that stuff and then i felt like we couldn't write everything so we started a paper called I call Pravda which was uh, in Russian means I say Samizdat right? that's, yeah. that's so funny that I said Samizdat
0: because so yeah. yeah. and there was yeah. a
1: guy by the name of Dan Sharfman who was actually a communist but he was a sweet idealistic guy and I was his editor so I could control the, but I, I Dan would write and he was really enthusiastic let me a sheet and we put it out and no one knew where it came from
0: ah, so it was a secret a truly it a, secret a secret thing yeah. and it you told the story about Foster what was his name well, Foster?
1: I, Foster Brown you oh, told, told the story about Foster, Foster Brown I not tell the story but at graduation he wouldn't shake my hand he knew it was me I mean at, at that point it came because
0: out because you had also been you started to write about it and then you were told not to in the paper in effect
1: yeah How, what and, does that mean and, How, what does that look like well you know this is not a column we want to print. They know? would say that. <laughs> yeah. Screw you, you know? So right, we, and so we, you were like, well, then uh, I'm going to do it my it, way. And then what we had... Well, that's we what had, makes a report. I mean, that's what makes someone become a reporter. Great. And right? what happened... I was, I, I was the president of my class, I think, in my junior year, and then I didn't want to do that, Be run for the student body president, so I put up a candidate, a fake candidate called Barry Salon, which is BS bullshit. And... Um, and Salon was the first Greek, you know, to fight for democracy in Greece. And Barry Salon had his fourteen points, and one of them was Foster Brown's real estate deals. And, and you so, made a
0: fake, like you made fake posters yeah, for this guy. Fake. Fo- we had
1: a thing, and but Foster Brown was really unfair. He was fired, actually, maybe a year or two after I graduated. Thankfully, anyway. But that. So I was. Be, I became very animated um, as a. Well,
0: I I had this as a question to ask when you say you were, I'm not surprised to hear that you were the class president. Because I I wrote this down to ask you, which is that you're remarkably good with people. You know, you are, uh, if there's a group of people at a table, you are great at breaking the ice, at getting everybody talking, at asking the question that begins the big conversation. It's um, a really special characteristic of, of yours. And I'm wondering if that was always the case. It sounds like in high school, you had your group of friends, but I mean, this wasn't important to you, but did you, was it always the case that you understood social dynamics like that? Did you train yourself to understand that? How did this happen? You're well, laughing. You know,
1: I, I'm laughing because I'm, uh, you, I'm recalling, um, I was the house president of my fraternity in my junior year. I was an awful house president. And I was awful because I'm, I'm a neat, I'm very neat and I like things in order. The one thing that's never in order is a fraternity, a fraternity house, <laughs> and so I would go crazy. That these, so here, I mean, you, you think I'm diplomatic, and I was not. I was a failure as a house president. because I couldn't stand these guys leaving their laundry on the in the dirty underwear on the, you know, in Oh no, inside yeah, and, you're, you, and were, the you were glass. Felix, I mean, you were Felix Unger in the I was fraternity house. I was Felix that's Unger. a problem. <laughs> I was a real problem. So I, I you never one thing or the other. I was not one thing or the other, and though even though. I had enough of plum that I was voted the House president. Well, executing it's different. But, uh, executing is different. I was a failure.
0: Right. But did you set out? Did you, were you aware of it? Like, oh, I'm not cut out for this type of thing? Did that totally. help you know I don't want to be oh, in totally. politics? No, as no a-
1: I, I, I could have done it. I, I, there were certain things I realized that, that I could not do. And one of them was, was I, could not be a, I could not be responsible for slobs. And, and 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 putting up with it. I would just, I don't have the patience for that.
0: And uh, that's hilarious. I mean, you'd have to deal with a lot of slobs,
1: like if you were in the House and of Representatives. I these guys, but they were slobs to me as, when I was House President. They were good guys when I wasn't.
0: Right. Well, you were able to look at sort of like the whole of, of how they were. Did they, I mean, sort of picture Fraternity House caring about these issues that you cared about also. I don't know the kind of, like, you know what I mean, caring about what Foster Brown was doing. Um, and so you run this paper the whole time with this, friend of yours the communist you do it for the uh, uh, probably
1: two years year And are you and a
0: starting to think to yourself then i want to do this for my life i want to write
1: no um i was thinking i, I actually was thinking of of government politics diplomacy maybe and that's what and i remember I, I narrowed down two schools for graduate study uh one was the maxwell school of syracuse political science and and the other was was georgetown diplomacy and um I got a, a scholarship to Syracuse um, and I, I went there. Syracuse is about 40 miles south of Oswego, both unbearably cold, and um, and my job, my first uh, thing was, was to, um, I was in charge of a dormitory. I was room and board and tuition, uh, and you were in charge of a dormitory and the kids on your floor, you you were mentored to them. And they, the school, I, I had another run in because the school, they want you, resident advisors to fill out forms on the private lives of these kids. on To inform school. on them. Yeah, to inform on them. And not only really, did I, didn't do that, but I published the form. <laughs>
0: oh, so you were part of the paper there too? Yeah,
1: I, I was a columnist there, and then um, I started uh, something called, we called uh, uh, an underground literary magazine called the Sortonomicallys, and we, I, that's where I published the, the form. So I was fired from the um, but then I I, uh, my next year I got a scholarship to teach in the East African Studies program to teach Peace Corps trainees.
0: Also at Syracuse. At Syracuse. So you were able to stay there. Yeah. And did, did um did writing come easily to you when you started writing? Was it hard, do you remember? It was
1: hard. It was hard. I, I, I you know I, I didn't um I, I would monitor it wasn't on my but I would take Courses just to monitor them. Literature courses just to
0: not even thinking. And so you still didn't think. Oh, I'm going to be a writer. You thought I'm going to be a well. A I, no, I I
1: I thought I didn't know what I wanted to be. I, I I I betwixt. Some days I thought I wanted to be a diplomat. Some days I thought I'd like to be in government, not to run for office, but to sure. And and some days I thought I want to be a writer. And what happened was I, I got a I, I got past the M.A. degree. And I was in a PhD program, and I said, I don't want to do this.
0: The political science stuff.
1: I don't want to be a PhD. I don't want to be in, you know, for more years of this. So the the head of the school, a guy by the name of Scotty Campbell, the dean of the Maxwell School, introduced me to a guy by the name of Howard Samuels. Howard Samuels was a, 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 quote, upstate industrialist. He's a guy who invented baggies and the plastic clothesline, and he wanted to run as a Democrat for governor of New York. And I would... Uh, I, my job would be his coat holder and his speechwriter. So I would use the writing. And, and Scotty introdu- Campbell oh. introduced me because of the writing, the speech speechwriting thing. So that was my first job in, in politics. And I, I did a lot of writing, but I also traveled with him and did...
0: Right, which taught you a whole bunch of stuff about the way people... <laughs> in power, deal with each other. And
1: my job was to watch. And and,
0: and were you sort and, of an was advanced man a part of it or you were his body guy?
1: I was with him all you the were the time. body person. I was with him all the time. I was George Stephanopoulos kind of role in that campaign. Um, and and became like a member of the family. I mean I would stay at his house in Canandaigua, New York and, and I loved Howard Sam, he's a wonderful man. And um, and anyway, he lost. He was a reform candidate. He went and then I did a number of things. I, I edited a weekly newspaper in Manhattan for a period of time, called the Manhattan Tribune. Is that how
0: you were making? How were you making a living? That's how you were making a living.
1: Well, with Samuel's, I made a living. Then the newspaper, and then I was I, I, reserves. I got in, you know, I, I got in the, the Air Force reserves. Um, of course, I, I would get drafted, but you were able to get in. I, I got in, did that for my six months duty um then samuels was was the undersecretary of commerce in the johnson administration in 67 and i went down as his chief of staff i was a reasonably well organized e- executive type and I,
0: I had clearly you kept the floors of the fraternity clean yeah, yeah, i right, mean i understand right. and but i did not have the same skills. problem
1: I had the yeah. same problem with commerce but <laughs> so what happened was that that um uh I couldn't stand the Vietnam War. I would, I would just, I, as I was protesting, I would sign all these petitions. So one day, were you
0: going to draft? Were you going? I know you were in the reserves. If you were called up to go, would you have gone?
1: It's a good question. What did you I, think I, at I, the time? No. Right. But would I have done that? I don't know. Right. I mean, but I'm but saying, in your head, in it head, was, I'm yeah, not
0: going. I, right. And Absolutely.
1: then it just so happened. In my head, I'm not going. But I got in the reserves legitimately. It was not right.
0: Yeah. yeah. No, no. Of course, I or anything.
1: And then, um, but Johnson's. Uh, Chief of Staff gave him a, a Watson, and he, kept, he said, Howie, this all letter on these, on these petitions against the That's not your wow. boy, is it? You know? Anyway, I, I just couldn't stand it. So I quit, um, and, and I wasn't forced out. I just quit. I, I said, I, I feel I can't work. For, I can't be part of the Johnson administration. And about a month later, Bobby Kennedy announced for president I went to work for him. And um, I had, a, I'm, I'm blocking, I forget, there was a six month period where I worked, I was the executive director, Bob Ken- Robert Kennedy wanted to try and get the Democratic Party to involve young people in, in the Democratic Party, and I was the executive director of that effort. So I got to know him a little bit, and, um, and I quit that because it was impossible. The Democratic Party didn't want to anything to do with that, and he knew it, and he, one day we were uh, we went around the, st- the state to talk about the program, and we we had to land at Logan Airport because of uh, bad weather in New York. And he we walked in the airport and he put his arm on my shoulder. I, I was a relative stranger to him, and if he saw me on the street a month later, he wouldn't know me. And he put his arm on me. He says, "I know you're depressed, but I want you to hang in there." And of course, I stayed an extra month or two just because of that. Because of Bob and Kennedy, looking at yeah, yeah. Well, the effect of that. Anyway, then like I worked that. for him in the campaign, and then um,
0: what did you do for the campaign?
1: I, my job was to um, was to help organize New York State for him. And we had a meeting the night, the June night, he was killed. We were all staying at the Shelburne Hotel. And we had a meeting, and we were really depressed, even though he had won California. We didn't know how he would win New York, which was the next state. And we were all depressed, and we went to bed, like, at 2 o'clock and at 4 o'clock. We were awakened, and that was it.
0: Yeah, no, of course, I can't imagine being that that close to that and having, having known him the way that you, you you did. it's I'm struck by this thing, which I didn't realize before, of the times you kind of brushed up against a certain sort of institutional power and had a problem with it and decided to fight it or to leave it, which is a great training for a reporter, in a way, to see that stuff up yeah. close, right? The hypocrisies.
1: It, it is. You know, it's really interesting because one of the things that People sometimes, I I have in the journalism I've done, I work hard at getting access to the people I write about. And because I think that you need a full view of these people and and not looking with your head pressed against the window, looking and imagining what's in their mind. You want to actually be in their mind. You want to be that close. But there's always a danger when you get that close to the flame that you'll get singed or you get taken in. and but I think if you remember always who your audience is, which is the reader, not the person you're writing about, you, you can be protected. If you've ever had a professional shave from the barbershop, you
0: know how it can change not only how you look, but also how you feel. The baby smooth skin, the confidence you feel knowing you look great. Now you can get that same barbershop feeling at home with the one blade razor. You know, I do not like shaving. I have a beard m- much of the time. But I have used the One Blade razor and it shaves you clean and uh, you do kind of get that barbershop feeling in a great way. I, uh, it's a good way to keep what the barber has done. If you go to the barber for beard trimming uh, and if you want to get a clean shave of your whole face, it does that great too. Listen, One Blade will give you the best shave of your life with no razor burn or ingrown hairs. It's been obsessively engineered to be the optimal tool for performance shaving from the perfect pivot and weight to the finest materials such as ultra high grade German stainless steel. This is an heirloom quality razor you can pass down for generations. Each one is hand assembled and serial numbered and every one blade is backed by a full 60 day money back guarantee and a lifetime warranty. So if your family's been asking what you want for Father's Day, give them this URL, onebladeshave.com slash moment. Just for Father's Day, you'll receive a free Yeti Rambler with all razor purchases. Visit... OneBladeShave.com slash moment You seem to genuinely enjoy people in a way that many reporters don't. I do. You enjoy the discourse. Guilty. Yeah, you get a kick out of them. Right. You like the stories. And I can and I know the history of the books and some of the fallout. You've told me some stories about spending time with a certain person. And I'm wondering when you started when you had to make that decision this is going to cost me a relationship which you had to know or assume or think or you saw the result of it how do you because unlike joan didion who's out front with it you know writers are always selling somebody out you're not there to sell somebody out you're there to understand them right but the end result might be that they're not going to enjoy reading what you've told me stories about guys taking your power rooms and then the next time you walked in giving you the cold shoulder so tell me, talk about that stuff. You
1: know, it really, this gets back to that famous uh, book that Jana Malcolm wrote where uh, about Jeffrey MacDonald and Joe McGinnis. Joe McGinnis was a reporter who ingratiated himself with Dr. Jeffrey MacDonald, who was con- in a trial. Uh, the charge was that he killed his wife, and, and he claimed he was innocent. Joe McGinnis pretended or said, I believe you, Jeffrey MacDonald, I'm, I'm with you and then savaged him in a book. And and Janet Malcolm, this brilliant writer, writes uh, this book, and the first paragraph of the book basically says, uh, any journalist who's honest knows that what they do is acts of betrayal. They they seduce and they betray. I'm I'm being less eloquent than she was. And I took issue with her. I said, "Uh, Janet, I said, you are... When you accuse a writer of betrayal, you're taking the word of the person who claims they were betrayed. You're ignoring what the journalist might say. Because I, I have met, written many times, I remember the first time I wrote, a, one of the first pieces I did for The New Yorker in 78 was a profile of Mayor Koch, it was two parts. And Koch was enraged by the piece. He, I had enormous access to him, I was a fly on the wall in his office, better part of his first year as mayor. Uh, read uh, read his mail on with his permission, you know, et cetera. And he accused me of betraying him. And I insisted on having a conversation with him with Dan Wolf, the former owner of the, of the Village Voice, who was his closest friend. And the three of us on the call, and I said, Mr. Mayor, I said, when you accuse me of betrayal, you're accusing me of, of uh, doing something unethical. A betrayal is if I took something that was off the record and put it on, if I lied, if I made something up. But, but just because you disagree with me, that's not betrayal. I understand why you're disappointed. That, that, but it's not betrayal. You shouldn't use that word. And he agreed. He said, I shouldn't use that word.
0: Were you able to rebuild a relationship with him?
1: No. Uh, Did I you mean, care? We'll, we'll see him. Yes and no. Uh, I, essentially I view myself as, as a visitor to a planet and I visit your planet I'm leaving your planet I don't you know it's I'm sorry you know I do I like it but I actually uh, having been in politics yes uh, for some years and now journalism I actually think you have to be much more ruthless in politi- in, in journalism because in politics you have loyalties you're not allowed to have loyalty. Well, now. your
0: loyalty, you said it before, but I want to repeat it because I think when you, the, the thing you're even leaving out of your own argument about tra- betrayal is that your loyalty isn't to the subject. Right. Your loyalty is to the people back home that you're telling the story right. for. The so real. you can't betray that. You actually, right. as long as you don't lie, as long as you don't cheat or lie or right. change the story, right. definitionally, when you say, I'm writing the piece for The New Yorker, I would like to talk, spend some time with you you can't betray the subject, right? I mean, now, being a subject a lot now in my life, I will say the world's becomes physically and that I don't, I'm, I'm always aware that if a reporter wants to spend time with me, they're not my friend because I know that there's another, I know that at any moment, they're, and it's their job. Their job is to expose who I really am so you have to be aware that people are going to try, and, and they're going to try to get maybe the worst moment.
1: But if they—you see, here's the, the one twist on this that I have listening to what you just said. Many reporters today want to play gotcha and, and are looking for the worst moment as a definition of, of the whole person. I think that's unfair. And one of the luxuries of writing for a place like The New Yorker or writing a book is that you can, as you said earlier, really try and understand. So when I go to someone and I ask them to cooperate with me and open their lives to me, I'm basically saying, I really want to understand you. And, and I really do. And, and one of the most valuable interviews I do when I do a book, and let's say I do 20 interviews with a person, probably the single most valuable interview I do is often the first one. Which is when I ask about their life and their biography, and sometimes by age twelve they're on for four hours already, you know. But it, it, it creates a bond, and clearly, and and is that manipulative? Well, in part it is. On the other hand, I remember when I interviewed, uh, when I covered the Microsoft trial, Microsoft an antitrust trial in two thousand, the the judge famously
0: and in an incredibly you wrote incredibly well and great stuff about it. Yeah. But
1: some, I asked to see the judge. Can I talk to the judge? And And the judge says, you can, but you can't write about until after the trial. There was no jury. He was the the judge and the jury. So I had 12 hours of interviews with the judge. The first four-hour interview was just about his life. And what he said to me in that four hours was all I needed to know about the decision he would make. Because he said to me, you know, I was a young lawyer, and I went to work for CREEP, which was the committee Committee to re-elect the president, Nixon. Nixon. And I was idealistic and I really believed I'm a Republican and I support him. And then I discovered he lied and he cheated and it was outrageous. And so I, and that had a huge impact on me. And then later in the subsequent interviews when he talked about Bill Gates's depositions, there were 20 hours of depositions. And Gates clearly was not telling the truth. I mean, it was obfuscating and stuff. And he saw Richard Nixon when he saw... And I immediately made that connection. I knew it. So that interview, that biography interview I did with the judge, was the most illuminating interview to tell me why he made, help make the decisions he did.
0: And was the judge pleased or displeased with your work? Did you ever hear?
1: Yeah. The judge I did hear, he was not displeased. He he uh, he was overruled by the Court of Appeals, uh, only in, in that his, first of all, they were upset that he talked to me. Uh, but two... He's overruled because they disagree with his... Break. He, he advocated to break up Microsoft, which I disagree with, too. I think it was stupid. It was, was going to happen by the Internet and, and open yeah, source. Well, disruption always shows yeah. up as you... But, but he, he was... Uh, we, we had some nice correspondence after.
0: Well, yeah, I was thinking about... I, I agree with you about the difference between gotcha journalism and someone who's really trying to get it right. But I was thinking about um, Michael Bamberger's book about M. Night Shyamalan, and it's like, very hard for anyone now to give that kind of access because um, anyone at their worst moment, um, right, at anyone's best moment they're better than they are and at their worst moment they're worse than they are and it's hard to trust. So h- how do you convince people? Because for me, I would never, it'd be very hard for me to really trust somebody that they were interested in this fairness and in being fair in really not getting me after I'd been up for three days shooting. And a guy cuts me off in traffic, and I give him the finger, which I you know I know I shouldn't do, and then you know the piece is going to open with right. koppelman sticks his finger out and <laughs> gives a guy a Bronx cheer, and suddenly you're the right. worst guy right. in the world you right. know? so how do you what do you what's your technique? How do you articulate to people look i'm, uh, I'm I am not going to hurt you uh, uh, wantonly
1: well first of all the the, the publication you you are writing for matters. So That's The true. New Yorker is a nice calling card, uh, and they know you have fact checkers, um, wh- which is also important, uh, which a lot of publications don't have. They know you have length, they know you have time, and they know you have fact checkers. And they know you have, you know, it's a reputable publication. Um, if, if you've done it a long time, you maybe you have a reputation and know something about you, they think you're fair. If you're writing a book, same thing applies. And and I think it it goes to the personality. I mean, I remember when I was trying to get Rupert Murdoch to to agree to a profile. Uh, he knew I abhorred his journalism because I quit the Village Voice and New York Magazine when he took it over, rather right sure. than work for him, and helped lead the fight against him. You know, because I thought he was yes. a, I thought he was a gorilla. Um, and in journalism, I still think he's a gorilla. And and um, but I think in, as a businessman, he's enthralling. I mean, he's really Built. He's, he's got balls. He really takes chances, and and he's interesting. So I would when I'm I'm started writing the Annals of Communication for the New Yorker. I asked to, I, I, one of the things that Tina Brown, who was then the editor, let me do. I said I'll do it, if but I need five months to just go out and talk to people and not write anything. I just want to get to know. Understand this world and how it's changing, so I spent five months on a sabbatical, basically learning and talking to. So I talked about 60, 70 people in the media, in the media, and, and in 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 not in technology, Silicon Valley. I mean, just understand how this world. Because originally she said, "What a, right." about the annals of entertainment i said no no it's much too narrow right the world is all merging and and ever microsoft wants to buy studio i mean it's all different. well yeah
0: that's your i mean clearly been a great theme of yours for yeah. a long right. time recognizing this wave
1: ahead of time so one of the people and and you're going and you're taking notes but you're not writing sure and so i talked anyone i wanted to see they talked to, me, including murdoch mm-hmm. who knew my history with them yeah and so i did that and then over the years, I would interview him for, I remember doing a profile of Herbert Allen, interviewed him, blah, blah, blah. But I would always say to him, over four or five years, I want to do you, you know? And he says, I'm not talking to you. Right. Right? But eventually, I got him to relent and agree to talk to me. So he spent more time than he'd ever had spent with any journalist then, you know, doing interviews. And we had, I was with him 10 days, and we had dinner seven of those 10 days and in his office all day long. All and on the record? Except the only thing that was off the record, I can say it now, he was then married to Anne, his his second wife, and she was a devout Catholic and very anti-abortion. And when R- Rupert Murdoch said to me at one point, well, I could support abortion in certain cases, for he said, please, could we keep this off the record? That was the only time he asked, because he didn't want to offend.
0: And you kept it off the record? I kept it off the record,
1: yeah. And and um, and they're not married anymore, so I can tell the story. Sure, but, but uh, in any case, he uh, at the end he hated the piece. I mean, he was very upset. It was called the pirate, um, and he is a pirate. And and but anyway, he, he uh, So that was so tip of what it happened day. when
0: you saw. But you, but you knew who he was the whole time. I knew who he was. Uh, so you didn't become disillusioned by the man, right? You went in thinking. I, 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 let me ask you: Do you go in? When you start, are you setting aside the preconception or not? I mean, either answer is actually okay. No, it's a
1: good question. It's a great question. Uh, you try and set it aside. You try and say, blank slate, right on me. I want not understand. I want to know who your friends are. I want to who I should be sure to talk to, and I know who the enemies are. I mean yeah. and so you, you basically are it's a bl- you're a blank blackboard and you're writing on it. and and, and I keep voluminous notes and tape everything. and I, I create an index with, with you know all, all the things various people say and I organize and create a narrative out of that. And it, it's a, almost judicial function. You're sitting there, sure, and you're sorting yes. out all the things and then you're weighing the evidence and you're saying, you know, what I used to think about him in journalism is right. He is, these he does things. piggish things in general. But as a businessman, which, which was original perception, he's really interesting. But he broke his word on any number of these business deals and you gotta report You got to report it. it. You know.
0: So what is it about, it's, you become so animated when you talk about this stuff. What do you love so much about this exploration you've been on for these 30 years? About reporting, you know, since 93 or whatever, um, about reporting about this world because it leads to the book that you've just written I mean w- what is it about all of this and about you in the middle of it that turns you on so much?
1: I'm curious um, and for instance the book I just did uh, advertising uh, I mean I learned a tremendous... Frenemies I, I, I learned a tremendous amount doing the book and I, I went into doing the book because there's someone who writes about the media if you follow the old Watergate adage, of follow the money, you say, if you want to follow the money, who is financing the media? It's advertising. And yet, advertising, isn't it in trouble? Is it in, but I actually learned it's in more trouble than I thought when I started. So you're on this journey to try and understand this new world. Uh, again, I've visited, this is a planet I've just deposited myself on, and you want to get to know the natives. And then you, you say, who should I be talking to? And then you start meeting interesting people and you say, I really should spend more time. This might be one of my characters to tell use a vehicle to tell the story. That's very exciting, trying to figure out who your characters are. And as you're doing that, you're getting full of anxiety because you're saying, Maybe I don't have a story. Maybe I don't have a narrative. That's self we all have that self-doubt. Yeah. Oh my goodness. And,
0: and you do still at this point in oh, your career, Lord, you'll oh, get oh. this is really important for people to hear. Because I get, in the middle of every script, I'm like, oh, no one's going to care. This is terrible. What am I doing? Do you still get that no one's going to care?
1: Total. You do? All the time. I and mean, how could you not? What's your practice? How do you force yourself through? Just well, to, do you I, have a page count? I you actually a- think insecurity is real important to be a good journalist. I mean, you have to be, I mean, I'm always amazed when I watch these cable interview shows and who's going to win the election? Well, let me tell you what's going to happen yeah, right. in the election. And I say, well, shut up. I don't want to listen to you. How are you so certain about anything? I'm not certain about most things. And, and I think that's a healthy thing because the job of a journalist is to listen, not to talk. And, and, and as you listen, you learn. And if you're talking, you don't learn. So, so the journalist who has long-winded questions or insists on telling you about my biography as I'm supposed to be interviewing you, right? That's a failed journalist. That journalist will not get the story if you shut up and listen and let the silences work for you and try and understand the person you're talking to, I get excited about that. And, you know, I mean, what makes someone tick is really kind of fun. And, you, and sometimes you, you don't know, and I'm not a psychiatrist, and I don't do psychobabble stories, but I am looking like the judge I, I described. Clearly that Nixon experience shaped, and you're trying to
0: find those moments those moments of connection i am do you like the writing as much as you like the finding the words you like because okay you're very social you like to be engaging with smart interesting people your subjects are usually bright people who you so you love that you love being able to solve this question for yourself how about the writing piece which is the alone piece which is you by yourself think do you enjoy it is it hard
1: I, I do, it's hard, I enjoy it. Um, Your prose is very clean. What I don't enjoy, however, is the hardest part. It, you, you create an index of, of what people have said and, it's, and the things you've read the books, the documents, and I mean, this book, the latest book, I have 5,000 some odd documents, and then 50, 60 books, and, and notebooks from A to Z.
0: Well, and you're scrupulous about crediting them. When I read the book, I, you constantly are pointing to, well, this person said this, and that person said that. Books, I'm you're trying to do constantly referencing that yeah. stuff.
1: No, I, I, I try to do that. But you're sitting there, and you've got all this wealth of information. The index, single space, is probably 400 pages. And it's a lot of data, a lot of information, a lot of contradictory. And you're sitting there, and you're saying, oh, my God, what is my narrative? and is this going to work and does this flow and do I, does this chapter belong here or there or whatever and and you go through tremendous anxiety and then when you start writing then you start getting upper and you're, oh, you you're do. kind of oh you do yeah you're, you're into it i write at home i like to be near my refrigerator yeah. and and you'll go out to the gym for you know at 12 o'clock let's not say. first first thing you do yeah, is write for yeah I, first thing i do is read the papers and the online stuff I get up at five, so I get up really early. Too. Yeah, you do too. Yeah, and 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 then seven thirty, I'm I'm starting to write. Right. And and then do you uh, do
0: meditation or journaling or any of that stuff, or do you just have your coffee and read your paper? No,
1: I, ex- I I do stretching, sit ups, and do that before I go to, and then I go to gym at noon. Or right. Eleven or but twelve.
0: But you're writing first.
1: Writing your, first. Your
0: board count or page count?
1: No, I know there's some people who say I, I read Tom Wolfe who who died yeah. this week, where he talked about how he has to have two hours and 10 pages. Two hours ideal, but 10 pages he has to finish every day. Gay Talese, another wonderful writer, Gay writes longhand and will not go to the next sentence until he feels he's perfected the previous sentence. I, my attitude is I vomit as on the page and then come back.
0: You rewrite and rewrite. And rewrite. Do you, In the morning, do you read up to where you're starting or you wait till you finish the that whole at, draft?
1: I do that at night. I, I read what I've written that day.
0: I love writers process stuff so you write the pages
1: right pages. go to the gym live your live your life come back no I come back in the afternoon work um, and uh, most nights I, I like to cook so most nights I'm home I cook I go in You're a good cook I, I go in and I chop up I put on you know CNN and watch the latest thing that Trump terrible thing that Trump has done this day and I get angry and then um, if we're home my wife and I you know we'll talk we'll have dinner um, watch billions and then I'll go back and, and uh, spend um,
0: so you can have a glass of wine before reading the stuff over yeah. and then that helps you Yeah, I'm saying you can have a glass of wine yeah. or two and then kind of read over the thing yeah. Didion I've read I don't know her but I've read does that has a couple glasses of wine to read the stuff
1: at the end of the day I'll read it or uh, and sometimes oh, when you I'm make notes out. yeah oh, sure. oh no no I, you're I've, reading it and making notes and or, then, or I'm printing it out and making notes, and will you revise
0: first it? thing in the morning, then based yeah, on your notes, yeah, yeah. Genre- and then generally, but go? Forward. Generally,
1: but but no, but but uh, I don't want to misstate this You're because same. I I will I will sometimes do a a, um, a entire chapter and then go back and do the whole chapter, and sometimes and certainly I'll do a whole book draft and come back and do the whole thing. So so when I, unlike Talise, for instance, who wants to perfect each sentence. I'll go back. I'll revise the second draft, but I, there's a third or fourth draft coming.
0: Me, me too on scripts. Right, hundred percent have to. I'll re- I write the thing. Wait a day. Re- rewrite it. Get the whole five scenes together. Rewrite right. that. Get to the end. You know, rewrite that too. I, I, I want to talk about how getting. So you were a journalist. You worked for the. You, you tell it, uh, just the biographical stuff. Where did, were you working before the New Yorker? I,
1: I was. I, I was. Um, I was Howard Samuels' campaign manager for governor in nineteen seventy four. With my help, he went from a twenty point lead against you, Kerry in the primary yes. to a loss. Well, I know
0: Governor Kerry won. Right. So yes. And
1: and so then. I said, I really just want to go back and be, I want to be a journalist. I'm a writer. So I started freelancing for Connecticut Magazine, for The Village Voice, I was, uh, and I was hired, um, actually, no, before that, I was hired by the New York Post to be their chief political correspondent and a columnist. Dorothy Schiff was the owner of the New York Post then. This is before Peter Calico? Before Peter Calico. And before Rupert Murdoch, right? Yes, it went and, her,
0: then Calico, then Murdoch.
1: And so I was, I think, yes, her, Calico.
0: Was there someone else yeah, before uh, Murdoch? Uh, uh,
1: yes, Abe Hirschfeld.
0: Oh, sure, of course. Yes,
1: and and anyway, uh, my my first column in the second week uh, took to task one of Dorothy Schiff's friends, and she said, oh, "How how could you do that? You're you you work for Samuel's, and now you're writing about." And I said, well, that's a fair question, Mr. Schiff, but don't you think you might have asked it before you hired <laughs> me? So, so anyway, I was either fired or I quit. But uh, nevertheless, I left the post after two weeks. And um, then, I f- then I... kept repeating, Ken. Then, yeah, then I freelanced. Um, and then Connecticut Magazine, Village Voice. And I was hired as a political columnist for Village Voice, writing the Running scared column, and, and as writing investigative pieces for New York Magazine. So I did that for Clay Falker, who owned both publications. And then in early 77, when Murdoch did this hostile takeover of New York, we went on strike, about 40 of us. And we very popular. it was written every day on the front page of the New York Times. amazing how that stuff wouldn't get covered today. And when he won, we quit. And so... And then Mr. Sean, who was the editor of the... I was
0: gonna, so you, William Sean hired you.
1: William Sean called. I, I, I was out to lunch with my friend Richard Reeves. Jeez. And we come back, and on my machine, hello, Mr. O'Lenna. This is how we talk like Peter Laurie. Hello, Mr. O'Lenna. This is William Sean. S H A W E. Would you call me back? And he left his number, and I, I called him. In.
0: Now, did he know? I always wanted to know this guy's like this. He knew he didn't have to spell his name out, right? I mean... Did he understood the? I'm saying, and, and you knew him. I stood attention he understood, understood the name. I mean, he
1: under, he knew who he was in the world, didn't he? I don't know. You know, he's a very mod. He was a surprisingly modest man, and and you called him Mister, and he called you Mister, and and you know, he I sat know at the thing. desk. He's very short. His legs barely touched the ground, but he was very polite. I'll never forget one of the amazing experiences, which never happened, and maybe it shouldn't have happened, but it never happened again. I had done a three-part series for them called The Underclass about poverty in oh, America. Oh, yes,
0: which became a book, yeah. didn't it? Yeah.
1: And, and um, so the first two parts run. The third part was really, what do you do about The Underclass? And they said, they really got to cut a third of it. It's too long. So I said to my editor, I said, you can't cut a third, not now. I mean, it te- cuts, the, guts the piece you have to talk to Mr. Sean. I go in to see Mr. Sean. His door was always open. He said, well, give me a half hour to read, reread the piece, Mr. Oletta. Reread the piece. I come back. He says, follow me, Miss Lady." He goes down to the composing room. He said, Mr. So-and-so, I don't want to cut Mr. Oletta's piece. What are my options? He said, well, you can cut Pauline Kale. No, I can't cut Pauline no, you're not Kale. cutting Pauline no, yeah. You can cut Talk of the Town. I don't want to cut. Yeah. And, or you can add 16 pages to the magazine. Add 16 pages. Wow. I mean, that'll never happen again. I'm not sure it should happen. But nevertheless, in that time.
0: Well, that's what I was going to ask you. what it before, before, I want to talk about one other thing before we're done. But I, what did that feel like to you? The New Yorker, I mean, a kid from Coney Island who was not a reader, who ends up at the most important, you know, literary magazine doing the most important kind of long-form journalism, did it? Did it land on you as this heavy thing? Did you know this is I've arrived? Because you've stayed there forever. So did you know right away I'm home?
1: Uh, uh, It was an honor. I I was honored, Uh, no question. But I also at the same time wrote a weekly column for the Daily News with my picture. And when I would go see my parents in Coney Island, no one read The New Yorker. They
0: cared about the hey, Daily News. Can you killing
1: a lot of the Daily News columnists. So it, it was That's funny, and
0: that's perfect. How did you survive through three editors-in-chief there? At The New Yorker? Yeah, three or four. It went to Tina and then to well, David actually, Remnick, right? No, or was there happened, another...
1: Actually, what happened was Sean was the editor, and I would write these longer and more investigative kind of... Uh, profile Cuomo, his first year as governor, two parts, gotch. Mario Cuomo. Uh, yeah, sorry. And that then, um, and then I went off in ninety, in, in eighty five, and I spent six years doing a book called, which became Three Blind Mice about television networks, which was the exact time that Robert Gottlieb was the editor. So I was not there for Gottlieb. For Gottlieb, who, who succeeded, like, who succeeded, Sean,
0: from, and was before Tina Brown.
1: In ninety one, the book comes out. Gottlieb had been fired. Tina Brown. Uh, was the editor? She asked me, uh, "Would I?" I was invited to dinner with her at inside Newhouse, at a small group of people, and that's when she asked me to do analytic entertainment. I first said no. I said, "You're thinking of it too now, anyway." And I'm going to Italy tomorrow, and and I was going to Italy, and I said, "I just want after the book." And then I thought about it in Italy, and I said, "Well, this would be kind of fun." And then, with Remnick, who I knew, and and he became the editor in '98. I was on a I my wife and I and some and family were on a on a little catamaran in the Red Sea and and please go to the fishing village and and there's a message for you there Ken so I go to the fishing village and in the fax there's a letter New Yorker editor David Remnick actually the letterhead Ken I've just made the editor when you come back call me let's have lunch so I, I didn't even know he's the wow. editor, but already it was a boss yeah so yeah. and he's done a brilliant job. so we have to talk about the Harvey thing because <laughs> as you
0: know my, my the, this show uh, look your your career is storied and incredible, and um, other than you quitting when some jerk doesn't let you do the honest work um, you had you know I, i'm I'm really interested in how people move on when they're thwarted in some way and uh, for those who don't know, Ken really had the Harvey story and couldn't quite tell it, right? You were writing about this stuff. So can you just talk about how you processed all that? And I know you helped Ronan later, but can you just talk about how this all hit you, how it what it felt like and what happened?
1: In, in 2002, I do a profile of Harvey, um, and I had information anonymous about... Uh, Women, one it, woman it, no, would You no, I
0: mean no one would go on the record for you? Right. Is that what you mean? I, yes. I want to understand uh, what I, you mean. I,
1: I, I had, uh, but I had things he had done, and people had told me things he had done, including raping a woman, including two settlements of roughly $500,000. Um, and I had on the record him bullying people physically, I, but not the sexual on the record. And we had we had to make a decision in 2002 as the New Yorker. Do we publish these anonymous assertions of sexual predation on his part or do we, do we not? Uh, and Remnick took a very strong position and I agreed with it. David Dave Remnick said to me when I was at the Washington Post we had, um, we had an expose of Senator Bob Packwood, 11 women went on the record accusing him of sexual predation uh, and ultimately had to leave the Senate. Uh, can we have zero Women, we have no one on the record, There's zero men, and it was great frustration. And I confronted Harvey. We had confrontation. I needed to see the canceled check. These, you know, and and it was a personal check because I said if it was a corporate check, he's going to jail, and right. and I've got I've got my story. I can print that, but we didn't have that, and we didn't have the women. So you had on the to record. go to Harvey and say, "I hear oh, that I, you're a sexual predator." I didn't say I hear. I said, "Tell me about," and I had the names of the two women. Oh, I had information. But it was all anonymous information see what he did that was so brilliant and disgusting when someone made an accusation he would send his lawyer to them and said if you if i will pay you harvey will pay you whatever you want but you have to sign this non-disclosure agreement and you don't get a copy of it i would go to courts in france and england and the u.s i couldn't find anything of course they're private documents his lawyer kept them and that's the brilliant way he kept it out of the public. and did it haunt you Oh, I, and so in 2015, twice in 2015, I tried to nail him again and I couldn't do it. I was, I was on his case, but I couldn't get women, including, you know, Ashley Judd. I, I said in 2015, I reached out to her and I knew she had been abused by Harvey and she wouldn't talk. But the times had changed. And maybe I didn't have the right empathy. I don't know what it was, but I couldn't get it. So when Ronan came to me last spring, Ronan Farrell, and he said, can I have access to your papers on Harvey? And I said, absolutely. I trusted him. I listened to him. Trust trusted him. My papers are filed at the New York Public Library. I gave him access to that. He said, can I come and interview you last summer? So he did a three-hour interview with me. He said at the time, as I remember, he had eight women, three of them on camera, five of them off camera, testifying against Harvey's behavior. And he had the Italian model. He had the police tape, which I tried to get in 2015 and couldn't. Of him when oh, he went to press, and okay, he had the audio tape of that. I said, so what's the next step? This is after a three-hour interview for MSNBC. I said, what's the next step? He said, I meet with the president of NBC News the first week in August. So the second week in August, I email Ronan. and I said, so what happened? He said, can I call you? And he calls me. He said they turned it down. They didn't want to do it. I said, "Why?" He said, uh, "They they didn't think I had enough." I said, you "Didn't have enough? You had eight women. You had an audio. File. How could you? How could they say that?" And he said, "You know, I could do something with it now, but I'm so depressed." I said, "Ronan, give me your number. I'll call you back." I call Remnick. Wow. And I said, "David, this guy's the real thing. He's judicious." And David said, "Have him call me Monday," and he did. And then he went off. I am w- out of it at that point. The New Yorker did a brilliant. And job. they do. And then they go do the thing. So that must have felt
0: great to you. Because oh. I'm sure, knowing you, the fact that you knew this miscreant was out there doing oh. these
1: things drove you crazy. Well, also, I'm so proud of Ronan. Ronan, uh, what a good reporter! Me too. I mean, he's—I know Ronan a little bit, and I think he's the world. He's extraordinary, him. and 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 Remnick and the New Yorker are so proud of him. And and I mean, Remnick said to me at one time, "God, to listen to the, to Ronan do interviews—he's so empathetic." But I
0: do want to highlight the like the, the gesture you made is not one that many people would make, right? This was a story you couldn't nail down as a reporter. This kid did it, and you not only ha- like told him good job, and you helped get his message to the world. Why not? Well, a lot of people wouldn't do that, Ken. Why not? Well, this goes back to that strong sense of right and wrong.
1: If, if you know that you got some monster walking the streets, and, and Ronan's got the goods to stop him, I, I mean, it was a no-brainer.
0: Well that's a great place to end Ken Oletta his new book Frenemies is as you can tell from this interview unbelievably well researched well thought out fair and gives you insights into whose pockets uh, what's going into and what the actual reason it's going in there is in a way that even if you think you're savvy to the media uh, you didn't know until you checked this book out Um, you can't find Ken Oletta on Twitter because he doesn't tweet True. Um, but uh, write to him care of the New Yorker maybe he'll get the note you can find me at Brian Koppelman you can email me the at gmail.com don't send me stuff and think I'm going to pass the tips on because I don't know if they're a good tip or a bad <laughs> tip and Ken finds his own subjects thanks for listening and go buy Frenemies and read it Ken it's an honor to know you thanks man
1: pleasure thank you Brian